Good evening, everyone. Good to have you here, even though the sun's kind of still shining out there. I don't think we have any announcements, so let's get right into our study, if we will. If you will, would you turn to Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 9. We're coming back. We're coming back to the uh, passages that, or the passages that we've been reading for the last couple of weeks, which is verses 24 through 27, because we're still dealing with the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, it's a prophecy that God has sent a messenger to Daniel to give to him, a messenger named Gabriel, an angel. So. It is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, but it is God giving the message. And so this is God's work. And what we're going to focus our attention upon a lot tonight, even though we're not going to spend a lot of time on it specifically, but we're going to see the word determined a few times. As a matter of fact, three times in the text. Determined. Because it's a very important word in the Hebrew... Because it touches upon everything that deals actually with the life of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And I'll talk about the word when we get uh, to that passage. So let's just begin by reading the passage once again, verses 24 through 27. And we're going to focus our attention tonight upon verses 26 and 27, the last two verses. So tonight's the last night in in the book of uh, Daniel chapter 9. Okay, just so you'll know. It's our fifth week in it, but it's very, a very important chapter because, again, this is, this is the crux of prophecy. Everything that we are, are finding to be the very center of prophecy right here in these uh, four verses. So we begin with verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined. There's that word. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Uh, The last few weeks we've dealt with the time frame of the 70 weeks. It's not weeks as we know them, but the weeks is just the number in the Hebrew. It's the number sevens. So 70 sevens, and as we have, have seen, now the consistency of Scripture is that this is dealing with 70 weeks of years, which when you multiply this out, it's 490 years. And uh, we went through that uh, multiplication last time and, uh, and the time before. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. But just understand, we're dealing with 490 years here. And it's determined upon thy people being who? Israel. Because Israel is Daniel's people. Thy people and upon thy holy city. What is the holy city? Jerusalem. Okay, this is not uh, spiritualizing anything. These are not metaphors. These are the actual uh, literal meanings that God is giving. Daniel, you're getting a message for your people about your city. And 
it's dealing with the end because God is going to finish with transgression. He's going to make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity. And then the, the second part of verse 24, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So the whole point and direction of these uh, verses are to the very end of the tribulation period, which we'll talk about in a moment again, but it's the end of that time when Jesus comes, His second time, the second coming of Christ, with His saints, and establishes His kingship in the city of Jerusalem. All right, so I'm trying to fill in a few gaps here uh, for those who may not have been with us. So, in verse 25 it says, Know therefore and understand. So it's something that we need to know and understand. Now, how do you know and understand but that you get into the Word of God and you stay in the Word of God and you study the Word of God? So, when you talk to people today about prophecy and they say, you know, I don't know. Well, you don't know because you don't read. And if you don't read, you don't understand. Because if you don't read and pray and ask the Lord for the wisdom from the Holy Spirit, you're not going to understand these things. So that's what we're praying for, to understand these things. So he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to, re- and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. And remember, we, we talked about those years. I'm going to explain it in just a moment. So I'm just going to read this now. That's a, that's a time frame. It says, Shall be seven weeks... That's seven times seven, 49 years, and three score, three score being 60, uh, and two weeks. So that's 62 weeks. All combined, though, is 69 weeks. So that time from the decree to build Jerusalem again to the moment that Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem uh, on that triumphant entry, uh, it's 69 years or I should say 69 weeks of years. And then it says, The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. And that's covering pretty much the seven weeks of years, the 49 years. And I'll talk about that again. And after three score and two weeks, that's not saying it's only the 62, that's including the seven before that. And after the three score and the two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is what we're studying tonight. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. There's that word again, determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This is not he, Messiah the prince. This is the prince that is to come. So it's a different prince. And uh, we'll identify him in just a moment. But this prince comes... Prince Little P, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined, there's the word again, shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, that doesn't, they may not make a whole lot of sense yet. But we'll make some sense of it here in just a few moments. So, so far in in our study of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, we've learned 
that these 490 years for which the 70 weeks represent in terms of years are determined or decreed by God Himself. So the determination, from the word determined there, the, the word determined means to give forth a decree. And it is God who makes this decree. So it's God's Word, and it is God's plan, and it is God's purpose. And then we learn that these years were divided. They were divided up for us, as we saw just a moment ago. The Lord made a threefold division of those 70 weeks. First of all, He mentions seven weeks, which is 49 years. And then the 62 weeks of years, that when you add those together, of course, that's 69 weeks of years. Uh, and that's 483 years. And then He speaks of one week in verse 27, as you saw. So in verse 20, verses 25 and 27, he makes that, those subdivisions of seven weeks, 62 weeks, and a week, because those are significant. For example, the seven weeks or the 49 years are given until the city and its walls are built. So after Nehemiah receives the decree and then goes to Jerusalem and, and actually builds the walls of the city uh, for protection of Jerusalem. They still hadn't built everything properly. So there were 49 years to do that, which we dealt with a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And then we look at the next subdivision, which is 69 weeks, or the 7 plus the 62. And that's the 483 years from the decree to restore and, re and build Jerusalem until... Messiah the Prince enters Jerusalem as king. So 483 years. Now remember all of this, that, that those years are specific years that God has given to Israel for the sake of their chastisement, for their failure to have kept the Sabbath years. And so we, we talked about the addition of all of those years that they didn't. Seven years of of every seventh year not keeping the Sabbath uh, rest of the land. They didn't let the, Sabbath, the seventh year rest. Therefore, the Lord had told them they should. And because they didn't, then they're, they're suffering the consequences for that. And then there's the mention of the one week or the seven years. And uh, that is the final 70th week to fulfill and complete the prophecy, which, by the way, has yet to start. The seven... Uh, years of this 70th week are, have yet to start. So that's future. That is yet future. So we discovered last time that using the research of biblical scholars such as Sir Robert Anderson, who wrote the book The Coming Prince, along with historical chronologies, in other words, just basic history lessons, from uh, we, uh, we discovered that from March the 14th, 445 B.C., that is the date, based upon Scripture and history, that is the date that Artaxerxes Longimanus, who was uh, the, uh, the king of Persia at the time, whom Israel was under uh, bondage to, 
Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah to build Jerusalem or to rebuild Jerusalem. On that date, March the 14th, 445, all the way to April the 6th, 32 AD, which was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant entry, riding on the foal of a donkey and declared as king. The week of Passover, right before he goes to the cross. That span of time, 483 years, equals 173,880 days. And again, based on the Jewish calendar, or the Hebrew calendar, which is based on a 360-day year. So, just a few days later, and we then see the next event unfold in the prophecy of Daniel. Just a few days later. In other words, a few days after Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. When everybody is actually declaring Him as King. Baruch Hashem Adonai. You know, they, they were yelling this out in Hebrew, of course. You know, blessed be the Lord God. You know, and, and, and as, he, as He enters in, they're proclaiming Him as King. The 26th, again, just a couple of days later, it says, and after three score and two weeks, that is the 69 years combined with the seven years previous, the 49 years that they used to build the city properly of, the, of Jerusalem. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, now this is a different prince than the, prince, the Messiah the prince. This is another person. And the people of the prince that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So we have to deal with, first of all, the cutting off of Messiah. What does that mean? I think you all know what that means. The cutting off of Messiah. Please understand that after this period of time, There is actually a break between the 69th year, or the 69th week of years, and the 70th week of Daniel. That's why I said earlier that the 70th week hasn't started yet. The cutoff was when Jesus was cut off. The stoppage of of keeping the time was when Jesus died on the cross. So, it is soon after the seven. Uh, I should say the 483 years that the Messiah was to be cut off. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing the statement cut off because in the Hebrew, the word determined that I mentioned to you earlier literally means to cut off. Now, in, 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 in the context of what it means when, when it says that these things are determined, they are cut out kind of like these are times or seasons that are marked out by God to be done. So it's an interesting usage. It's kind of a play on words in a sense that it says that Jesus is cut off because the same word is used when we read in the Old Testament about people that if they don't follow the law, they'll be cut off from the people of Israel and set away from the people of Israel. But cut off also means, and, and, and by the way, the, the phrase is a single word in Hebrew. It is the word karat, karat, K-A-R-A-T, if, uh, transliterated. But it means to kill, 
It also means to destroy or to execute as a criminal. It is used in all those manners. It is a word that is, that is used throughout the Scripture for such things as circumcision. Can you imagine? It is used for circumcision. What do we talk about in circumcision? It's cutting away the foreskin of the, of the male, but, but the point of circumcision for, for the Jewish people is to cut away the, the cutting off of the flesh. And it's a reminder that when we as believers in Jesus Christ come to Jesus Christ, we die so that He lives in us. That is, that is you know, the picture of, of, of baptism for us. You know, we, we go to baptism to say, you know, uh, we identify with a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, what, what did He do when He died? He was cut off from the people. In essence, we're cut off from the old life, the, cut off from the flesh, so that when we come out of, of, of the waters of baptism, because baptism is only symbolic, but when we come out of the waters of baptism, we come out with newness of life. In other words, now we have a new life because we have a new spirit. Our, our spirit's alive, and our spirit is joined with the Spirit of God. So... That word, kalad, is used also for, you know, uh, uh, the cutting of a covenant. Do you remember when Abraham made a covenant with God, or God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and we're told there that at night, you know, God commanded him to take an animal, and he was to cut it into pieces, and then separate the pieces from from each other. And then there there was that that light that that walked right through the middle, and, and Abraham had to go through there. It was the cutting of a covenant. And it was the same word. The, the, uh, and again, what, what, is, what is significant about that covenant? Something died. <laughs> Blood was shed. So in this particular case, as, as we're talking about Jesus, it speaks of a person who is being punished with death by piercing. Because that is another word or another meaning of the word karat. Death by piercing. What do we know about the death of Jesus Christ? And what is it that the Jews will see? They see Him when He comes again, the second coming of Christ. They will see Him whom they pierced. Interesting, isn't it? One word. And it means so much. And God uses it about Him determining these things. Marking them out to be done as His purposes and His plans. I like the economy of God. He can take one word and use it for a lot of stuff. And He does. So you see, our Lord was executed for a capital crime. According to the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, uh, that crime was blasphemy. And for the Romans, now, now bear with me when I say this. But for the Romans, the crime was insurrection that he caused against the Roman Empire, even though Pontius Pilate would declare, I find no fault in him. Now why do I say that? Because if you read the accounts of Jesus coming before Pilate, and especially in the Gospel of Luke, you'll realize that he, he was being accused of breaking the Roman law. And, and not wanting to follow the, the Roman, the Roman uh, leadership. 
Which, of course, the Jews were, were being hypocritical about that. Uh, and we can go on and on and talk about that uh, at another time. But the point is that he would have been executed for insurrection. It just comes to the fact that we have this phrase in our text that he shall be cut off, but not for himself. It brings us to that next phrase, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, some of your translations of that may, may say something to the effect of having nothing. He will be cut off and have nothing. Any of you have that translation or anything like that? Okay, I'll explain the difference. Because most modern translations give the understanding that when Jesus was cut off by crucifixion, that he was banished from the world and died, leaving nothing behind but the clothes on his back, and, you know, which the Roman soldiers wasted no time in playing games for. So it says he was cut off and have nothing. But the King James Version and the New King James both maintained the words, but not for himself. But not for himself. Which gives us a bit of a different picture here. Not to say that the other view is wrong. But it gives us a different picture because Jesus would not die. Jesus would not be cut off because of a Roman charge or a Jewish condemnation for something that he had done wrong. No. I want you to remember Jesus' own words when he talks about why he came to this earth. For example, John 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life. That I might take it again. Verse 18. No man taketh it from me. You see? No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He didn't die for himself. He didn't die because he was a criminal. On the contrary, he was perfect. He was, he was lawless in the sense that he, he gave the law. He didn't have to follow the law. That made him lawful, I should say. But he was blameless. Peter, who struggled so much during the time that Jesus was going through his, through his trials and, and his sufferings and his death, Peter himself will later say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also has, has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. He said, this was all done by the determined counsel of God. He didn't die for himself in the sense that he did something wrong. But he has suffered for sins. And he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive, quickeneth, or quickened by the Spirit. That means made alive by the Spirit. The same Peter who, after Pentecost and after receiving the, 
the power and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with 120 in the upper room went to the temple to preach. Well, he went to the temple and found himself preaching to thousands of people. And in the course of his message that he gave in the temple, he said these words in Acts, 20, uh, Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. He said, You men of Israel... Now remember, everybody that he's speaking to is Jewish. Everybody that he's speaking to is from Israel. They're inside the temple. Or they're in the temple in a, in a certain area. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, you should have known it was Messiah. You should have known that. He says, which God did by Him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate. Similar word to the Hebrew. This is the Greek, but this is a similar word in the Hebrew. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, of course, we know that he, you know, that it wasn't just the Jews that killed Jesus. Uh, the Romans represent all Gentiles, all Jews and Gentiles. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have have done. Um, what was necessary, in other words, to put Jesus on the cross. So that section of verse 26 now can be a little bit more clear in our hearts and our minds because we realize that he did not die for himself in the sense that he died as a criminal. He came to die. He came to give his life. To have nothing in the sense of the more modern translations that use that phrase can also mean that that when he died, he didn't fully accomplish everything at that moment, of course. Because he was yet to be sitting on the throne as king, which is yet to come thousands of years later. So... There's relevance to the need of understanding that phrase, to have nothing, meaning he has yet to fulfill everything, but he will fulfill everything because of who he is. So there's no no worry on our part. The second thing we need to look at is the consequence on the city and the temple because of this. The consequence on on the city and the temple, because the death of Jesus by no means uh, concluded the tragedy associated with the conclusion of the 69 years. Or I should say the 69 weeks of years. And so it can be said that at the expiration of the 69 weeks, the Messiah for whom Israel had waited so long had actually come only to be cut off and rejected by the very people who should have hailed His coming with joy. And so... With the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great prophetic clock stopped. The great prophetic clock stopped at the end of 69 
weeks of years, which would be 483 years. Determined by the counsel of God, given by the counsel of God, marked out and cut off and set apart by the counsel of God, the clock stopped when Messiah was cut off. And there has not been another tick from that clock since. You're saying, what does that mean? Nothing prophetic has happened. Oh no, a lot of prophetic things have happened. We're talking about the time frame that God has set for Daniel's people and the city of Jerusalem. A lot of prophetic things have happened since then. So it's not the stopping of the prophetic clock completely for everything that's happened. The church has happened. The Word of God has been preached and is being preached until the Lord says it's time to change matters and bring the consummation to its, to its end. But the prophetic clock dealing with Israel and its completion of its consequences stopped. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. And most of you know that this is the... Uh, Matthew's uh, account of the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is the sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives as well as, well, actually coming down from the Mount of Olives as well, as they looked at the city of Jerusalem uh, when his disciples and Jesus were ready to, to go into, uh, into the city. And in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and the disciples came to him uh, for to show him uh, the buildings of the temple. So actually, he's, he's on his way out of the temple and while they're close by the temple, then this is when this conversation begins. And, of course, he heads on to the Mount of Olives. They follow him so that he can conclude this Olivet Discourse or continues Olivet Discourse. And uh, verse 2 says, And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now the prophecy of Daniel in verse 26 then speaks of the people of the prince that shall come. So you back, you back in Daniel, you look at verse 26, look at the phrase, the people of the prince that shall come. This passage is pointing to the people who destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. Specifically, we know them to be the Romans or those who served in the Roman Empire and did this destruction in 70 A.D. under the Roman general Titus Vespasian. So that's historic, but it's also biblical. Even though 70 A.D. was, was beyond the time of, of the um, 
not so much the writing of, uh, of, of the uh, canon of, of the scriptures from New and Old Testament, because of the book of uh, Revelation would come a few years later, about 20 years later. 20 to 25 years later, the book of Revelation will be written by John. John was still alive, actually around the, about the, the turn of the, the, the new century then. But the Jewish historian Josephus dramatically records for us, <laughs> excuse me, that the city was burned to the ground and millions of Jews were killed. Some of them were cannibalized and many starved to death. But as devastating as that invasion and destruction was, it certainly didn't end the sufferings of the nation that had rejected its Messiah. I want you to consider the text that says there in verse 26 as well. Look at the last part of the verse. The end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the wars or of the war, desolations are determined. All right, let's make some sense of that. Take note of the words of Jesus, if you will, in Luke 21, verse 24. Luke 21, verse 24, and this is one verse of Scripture you don't want to miss. In Luke 21, verse 24, it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword. Now remember, remember, the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So we're still in the Olivet Discourse, but now this is Luke's account. And he says, And they shall fall, Jesus said, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now we can definitely say that the time of the Gentiles has not yet been fulfilled. Even though Israel is back in the land and even though Israel has some control of the city of Jerusalem, we have a dilemma in Jerusalem. The division of the city. The fact that, it, that uh, Muslims oversee what is called the Temple Mount. Writes Macdeb on, in the middle of the city of Jerusalem at the, the area where the excavations have been raised up, up uh, of, the, uh, of the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem. For those of you who have been to Israel... With us, you have seen the western wall, which is is so uh, precious to the Jewish people. That's where they go to pray uh, on a daily basis. And that was the, the last wall, and it is right up against the Temple Mount. And sometimes when we go, we're allowed to go on the Temple Mount. Sometimes we're not allowed to go on the Temple Mount. It all depends on how, how uh, uh, heated the, the, you know, the, the, the fight is between the, the Jews and, and, the, and the Muslims there over, the, over things. We've been on this some years. Other years we don't get to go on. <coughs> so the times of the Gentiles hasn't been fulfilled. Getting close to it, 1967, when when uh, 
uh, when the uh, Israeli defense forces entered in and, and took the city of Jerusalem from the Jordanians, you know, and uh, took, this, took back the old city of Jerusalem, that was uh, somewhat a, a victory until a few days later they gave actually some of it back. And that's where we are today. Anyway, the time of the Gentiles, please understand this historically, the time of the Gentiles actually began with the invasion of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., under, you know, under uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and would continue, as we shall see, into the time of the tribulation period. I'd like for you to turn to Zechariah chapter 14, because we need to understand this as being the time of the Gentiles still unfulfilled. In other words, we, we, we haven't come to the end of the time of the Gentiles because there's yet some things happening later on. In Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Now, we all know from our study of prophecy in the last couple of years or so, going through the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Revelation, and now Daniel, that the day of the Lord is, in fact, the tribulation period. It isn't just a single day. It is a, it is a time frame. The day of the Lord, throughout Scripture, consistently speaks of the time of tribulation. We know it to be a seven-year period, which is that last 70th week of Daniel. So he says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. This is a prophecy to Israel. Thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. What is the seven years, the last seven years of this, uh, of this time frame? What, what, what is its purpose? Well, it's still a part of the purpose that God has determined of the 490 years. It's just the last seven years that is determined for thy people to bring an end to sin. It's, it's taking them to the final, you know, the, 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 the final chastisement that they have to go through for what they had done. So that, that's not over with Israel. So he says, now it's gotten to a point where they will gather all, he will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. When it says all nations, we're talking about every nation that is in Israel. So it's Gentiles. And then it says, and the women will be ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And, and we could probably learn a lot from that later, but we'll have to come back to it. Once again, these things are by God's determination and by God's decree. And by the way, let me give you two verses of Scripture in Isaiah to confirm the importance of the determination of God. Isaiah 10:23 says, For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption or an end even determined in the midst of all the land. So God is going to bring an end to things, especially as it pertains to the land of Israel. And then Isaiah 28 verse 22 says, Now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption, again, an end, even determined upon the whole earth. So not only does God have an end for the, for the, the, the things that are happening to Israel, but there's going to be an end for everything. 
upon the whole earth. So, as we continue on with our text now, what's the next phrase we find in verse 26? The next phrase is, uh, Prince who is to come. And again, that is not speaking of Jesus Christ, it is speaking of Antichrist. Now, some people think Antichrist is on the earth today. It's quite possible. We don't know because he has not yet been revealed. We can make some assumptions, which I'm not going to do tonight, though I'd like to. I'm not going to make those assumptions. But uh, this is not speaking of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the prince who is to come is speaking of Antichrist. And this prince is connected in some way, of course, to ancient Rome. Why? Because there are that consistency of, of, of revelation, the consistency of prophecy. Uh, and in keeping with pro- uh, prophetic consistency, uh, it is in some way connected to ancient Rome. But if you remember what we've been studying over the last couple of, of uh, actually the last year, uh, we should remember the vastness of the ancient Roman Empire extended well into the Near and Middle East. Much of the armies of the Roman Empire were, 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 were filled by people from Turkey and Asia Minor and, uh, and Syria and uh, Northern Africa. And, and that's all East. And that's all land that is very prominent in prophecy today as well as in, as well as in uh, uh, current events. So we'll deal with more, more with that uh, in, in the next verse. So the next thing we have to realize is the, com- the covenant of the coming prince, because we've got to talk about the covenant here. I'm going to go a little fast, but I'm going to finish tonight, so you don't mind, all right? You, you don't mind how many hours, I, I mean, how many minutes I have to deal with? Uh, it's not going to be hours, but, but it might go at a little long. So look at Daniel 9.27, the next verse. And he, the prince who is to come shall confirm. Underline the word confirm if you have a Bible that you can write in. And and it's your Bible, not the church's. Underline the word confirm. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. What is the week? It is a week of year. Not years, but a week of year. It's a one week. Right? A week is seven. I'm sorry. It's a week of years. One week of years. So that's seven years. Okay. Not five, seven. I'm holding something. All right. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, seven years, and in the midst of the week. What is in the middle of the week? Three and a half years, right? So at three and a half years, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation, which is the offerings, to cease. By the way, the word sacrifice in the Hebrew speaks of blood sacrifices. The oblations or the offerings speak of the other kinds of sacrifices sacrifices the uh, grain offering and wave offering and other offerings. Okay? So, what does that tell you though? It tells us that there's going to be a temple again. Is there a temple today? No. Not a Jewish temple. But there's going to be a Jewish temple in the near future. And it can go, and and I'll tell you this, it can go up. If they, if they are given the opportunity, when they are given, not if, but when they are given the opportunity, the people of Israel will build that temple quicker than we've ever seen anything else built. I, I talked about this earlier in the, in the book of Revelation when we were studying Revelation, and that is that it may not be as big as the others were. Uh, those of you who have been on the Temple Mount or you, you see pictures of the Temple Mount, 
they don't need a whole lot of space on that temple mount to build a temple. Because what is the temple for? The sacrifices. That is their worship. The sacrifices and offerings. So it, it could be constructed very quickly. As a matter of fact, some people think that it, could, it would very well be constructed in about a month. Because I mean, their whole purpose is to build that thing and get it going. The Temple Institute, uh, we've been to the Temple Institute many times in, Israel, in Jerusalem. Man, they've got everything ready for temple worship. So they won't even have to build it or make anything. All the furnishings are made. They just need the temple. And they just need to put the stones up. And, and, and by the way, they don't need stones from the United States or any place else. You ever been to Israel? There are a lot of stones everywhere. So they've got plenty of stones. They can build it. So he shall confirm the covenant with, one, uh, with many in one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Now, that's what we're going to explain here in just a moment. Even until the consummation, which is the end, and the determined, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Again, we'll, we'll make all that clear. So this verse, verse 27, is where the whole problem of prophecy centers. The whole dilemma of prophecy. And here's the dilemma. What is believed about the contents of this verse? What is believed about the contents of this verse? Actually, just include the other three verses. The context of the verses 24 to 27. This whole passage. The break, by the way, let me, let me explain the break between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. The break in which we are now in is, of course, known as the church age. It's also called the age of grace. The time in which the Holy Spirit is drawing out a bride for the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The Lord, in all of His grace and all of His mercy towards us, has allowed this period to go on for some 2,000 years. That's, that's God's grace, isn't it? You know, if He had uh, come a thousand years ago, where would we be? Or, or you know, a hundred years ago. Not a thousand years ago. But even a hundred years ago. Where would we be? Where would we be? But this age will come to an end. That's, that's the whole point of these last few verses as well. The age will come to an end because there's a seven a 70th week to be fulfilled. And when the age, which is called the church age, ends, the 70th week will begin. We have to remember something. The Lord deals with the church and Israel separately in regards to prophecy. In regards to prophecy, God deals with the church and Israel separately. So before the 70th week of Daniel begins, that last seven years of time known as the tribulation period or the day of the Lord, that last seven years has yet to start, as we said. So we need to consider some very important terms mentioned in the last verse of Daniel 9. The first term is the one I told you to underline, the, the word confirm. This prince will confirm. And notice how it's written. It says, 
He shall confirm the covenant. But literally in the Hebrew, it is He will confirm a covenant. A covenant. Or specifically a treaty. He will confirm a treaty. How many of us have lived long enough to know that there have been many treaties that people have tried to get the leadership of Israel and the leadership of the Palestinians or the Egyptians or someone else together and, and the treaty is always broken. Right? How many of us live to see a few treaties here? Uh, all the old people. Okay, that's us. Okay, yeah. But some of you who aren't that old, you, it's happened, you know, if you keep up with things, it's happened a couple of times already. The second thing you have to understand is that he will confirm. By the way, the word confirm is not the... In the Hebrew, there's a different word for just regular confirmation of something. The word confirm here is literally in the, in the Hebrew, the word that means to strongly enforce. This prince is going to strongly enforce a covenant or a treaty with the many. How many of you see the word many there? With many. Literally, it is the many. And that is an idiom that stands for the majority of Israel. The majority of Israel is who will be given uh, the opportunity to be enforced uh, with this covenant. So... It is important to understand Israel's modern stance today in seeking after peace at any cost or any price. I know that we've heard that before. Israel wants peace at any cost. They're always ready to give concessions, but their enemies never do. They never do. In fact, they break every treaty... And they continue day in and day out many times or, or, or in seasons bombing areas of Israel. But now, see, it isn't just the Palestinians because they're being supported by Hamas and Hezbollah and these particular groups that, you know, all have links back to Al-Qaeda and others in, in the further east, in Iran and, and whatnot. And all, and all of these people are, 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 are funding all of this stuff that's happening. Israel keeps saying, we want peace. We just want to live in our land. But what what do all of the Arabs that that are against Israel, all the Muslims that are against Israel say? It's our land. It's not your land. But the Bible says, God says it's Israel's land. And not only is it that little strip of land that's about the size of New Jersey, it's a lot more than that. And God's going to give them that because He said He would. So it's a, it's a very tense, ridden situation. But you see, part of the agreement that will be made by the Antichrist will include temple worship services again, including those sacrifices and offerings in the temple as in time past. Now, the Apostle Paul would write concerning this. And I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul says this. Now remember, he writes to the Thessalonians, both in his first letter and his second letter, with many prophetic passages and many prophetic issues. 
He says here, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, don't, don't be so shaken as to think that the Lord has already come for His people and you missed it. Alright? In other words, the rapture. You didn't miss it. He said, let no man deceive you by any means. But notice where he goes with this. He says, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, the son of lostness, the the son of great sin, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, nor, notice this, or that is worship, so that he, speaking of this son of perdition, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. When Paul wrote this, was there a temple? No. Or was there? Yeah, there was. Trick question. There was. When was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. 70 A.D. But Paul is speaking of a time much later, much later. And then he says this. So he mentions there's a temple. And that he shows himself that he is God. In, in, in fulfillment of the abomination of desolation that Daniel has spoken of which there was a precursor to, which was who? Antiochus Epiphanes. If you remember, about 200 years before Jesus was born on this earth. But then the next verse says, Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? (laughs) He spoke to them a lot about end time issues because they expected the Lord to come at any moment. For the church. But don't think that the agreement is all in Israel's favor. So there's going to be this man, the son of perdition, who we call the Antichrist or the beast. And he's going to go into the temple at a certain point. We know when. When? Three and a half years. Right in the middle of the 70 year period. And he's going to declare himself as God. And so, but before that, he makes, a, he makes this covenant, but he enforces it, strongly enforces it, signifying that Israel will be pressured into agreeing with the terms of the covenant, much like being the ones who are to make concession after concession today, which they can seek to keep, still getting bombed, attacked, and so on and so forth. So this, uh, this prince in the capacity is spoken of actually in Revelation 6 verse 2. Let me give you that very quickly. And I saw and beheld a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Remember, these are the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. This is the first one. I saw and beheld a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The implication is that he sat on a white horse, he was probably wearing white garments. Might look like Jesus. Might look like a deliverer. Here was a guy who had a bow, but there's no arrows. 
And if you remember our study in the book of Revelation, this is deception. It probably has his arrows under the robe. The point is, I come in peace, look, I have a bow with no arrows. The whole idea is to deceive Israel. Now the reestablishing of the temple sacrifices will be a major factor in this covenant as implied in the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. So go back to Matthew 24 and I'll give you a few verses to look at. We're almost done, but let's take a couple more minutes than, than usual. Matthew 24, verse 15. And I'll put it in kind of overdrive now. But Jesus said, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Now what is the abomination of desolation? It, it is this Antichrist entering into the temple where he's not supposed to be and declaring himself as God. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which tells us that Jesus believed Daniel wrote the book of Daniel and not somebody else. And just keep that in mind with all the theologians you may talk to. Stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. You need to understand this. We've already seen it in history, Antiochus Epiphanes, and we have seen that it has been prophesied way before that. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Wow! Any of you live in Judea right now? No, we don't live in Judea. So it is speaking specifically then of Israel and is speaking specific, specifically to the people of Israel. When they see this happen, he says, Hey, when you see this abomination of desolation, get out of town. And then if you'll jump down to verses 21 and 22, it says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, no, nor ever shall be. Great tribulation, we can call the, the last three and a half years of the seven-year period the great tribulation, because then things get really bad after the first three and a half years. And expect those days should be, and accept, I should say, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So if it went on and on, I mean, it would, this guy would just wipe out the whole world. Why? Because the Antichrist is the minion of Satan. Let me speak of a great problem that we have in the church today, in the body of Christ. The problem is this. And, and the statistic is staggering. Staggering. 90% of churches today, 90% believe in replacement theology. 90% of churches today believe in replacement, replacement theology. The theology that teaches that the church has now replaced Israel. God has rejected Israel for all of their sin. And now the church is to receive all the blessings of Israel. But if we want to be consistent, if we're going to receive the blessings of Israel, shouldn't we also receive the curses? I wouldn't want to replace Israel that way. they still got a lot of stuff going on that God's dealing with them about. But we haven't replaced Israel because, you see, if we replace Israel then all of a sudden we make everything metaphoric. Then everything is, well, you know, sim symbolic. Uh, everything is spiritualized. No, we can't do that. There's an Israel today. There's a land. There's a people. There's an enemy. There, there, everything is falling into place, but we can't replace Israel. 
We can't do it. It's anti-biblical to do that. So that means that the majority of those who call themselves Christians are not listening to this prophecy of Daniel. Nor are they listening to the prophets or the book or the, uh, the book of Revelation or the prophetic writings of Paul in general. All they hear is that the church has replaced Israel and received all its blessings while Israel has been rejected. That means that we are not the majority of this country in what we believe and in whom we serve. We're not the majority. I don't care. Doesn't bother me one bit. Does not bother me. I believe that we need to we need to know the word of God and believe the word of God. And the word of God is so full of God's love for his own people. As a matter of fact, it tells us he hasn't replaced Israel. But time and time again, through the prophets, through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and, and all the minor prophets as well and Daniel, God is not done with Israel. That's why we have an Israel. That's why they have a land to go back to because God says you're going to come back to the land. If we just follow with the Bible, we will come to grips with the truth. Well, we've got to continue because we're almost done. The next phrase is, And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. As deceptively great as this man may appear, this guy's got to talk wonderfully and really grab the attention of so many people, whoever it may be. But at the end of the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, he comes into the rebuilt temple and he will demand worship as God, uh, as we read back in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to demand worship as God. Now we see his full rebellion against God and, his, and, and God's people. Now we see the full rebellion here. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I'll do this very quickly here. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to come. And then it says, for when they shall say peace and safety. Well, what's going to happen if you make a covenant with Israel, uh, between Israel and, his, and, his, and its enemies? People are going to say, hey, peace and safety. Finally, we got peace. Finally, everybody's made concessions. Finally, we're going to follow through. So when they, say, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. And this is speaking actually directly to Israel. All of the, all of the prophetic language you hear, the travail upon a woman as, with child, always points back to Israel. In every case. So now let's go on to the next phrase. Getting back to Daniel uh, 9, verse 27. Let's, let's go back. Let's, let's go on because of time. Here's that last one phrase. That we, you know, it's kind of like, whoa. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. 
which means it will be poured upon the one who makes desolate. So to pour upon the desolate means the one who makes desolate. That means the Antichrist. Here's the good news. God is going to avenge. Because, you see, the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not yours. It's mine. I'll take care of it. So this now describes the last three and a half years. And the horrors will continue, unfortunately, but especially against the Jewish people until the end. And what has been determined and decreed by God will be poured upon the one who makes desolate, upon the enemy. We, we studied that a lot there back in the end, toward the end of the book of Revelation. And uh, so you go back and, and, and uh, refer to those chapters, the last half of the book of Revelation. While the Lord will use these terrible persecutions to prune and purge the nation of Israel, He will all the while protect and nourish them supernaturally. One verse of Scripture to remind us of that is Revelation 12, verse 14. Now, the book of Revelation uh, chapter 12 speaks about Israel in terms of the... Uh, he calls, uh, John calls her the woman, or G, well, God does uh, in the Revelation to John. He calls Israel the woman. So it says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. What is a time, times and half a time? Three and a half years. A time, a year. Times, two years, and half a time. Three and a half years. Okay, just add it up. Uh, and, uh, and that is to nourish her from the face of the serpent. So uh, the book of Revelation talks about that time when they get away from the city, you know, where, where he says, flee Judea and go into the mountains and, and whatnot. All right. The last phrase is that determined. Those two words, that determined. Look at that in uh, verse 27 again. The last phrase, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. That phrase, that determined just reminds us that the Lord is behind it all. The Lord is behind it all. Because He has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And what is determined, and folks, this is the good, this is the good news, what is determined is the end of Antichrist. What is determined is the end of Antichrist. So we as believers in Jesus Christ already know that Antichrist has an end. And it will come great, greatly upon him. And not only upon him, but the false prophet and the devil himself. So, for us, the Messiah of Israel is truly our only hope. The Messiah of Israel is our only hope. To know Jesus Christ, not just to know about Him, but to know Him as Lord, as Savior, as Redeemer, and as King. As believers in Jesus Christ, looking and waiting for the blessed hope of His coming, what should we do but watch and be ready? Watch and be ready. Be diligent in the things of God. Be diligent in the Word of God. I want to leave you with these two, uh, these three verses, which is Mark 13, verses 31 to 33. 
specifically wanted to share this verse. I, I wasn't going to use it, but I, I thought about it and I thought it's really important for us to see what, what, what Jesus says here. He says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What words is he talking about? What is the context of, of Mark 13? The sermon, uh, the Olivet Discourse. What is the context? The end, the end times, the last days. Heaven and earth shall pass away, he says, but my words shall not pass away. In other words, we don't change the word about the end time because we don't like what we see. We have to realize that everything that Jesus gave us was for us today. And then he says in verse 32, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Don't be worried about Jesus saying neither the Son. Jesus knows everything. But voluntarily in the sense of him being in, in flesh on the earth, he, he, he just gave it, it's, it's in the Father's hands. But he knows when he's coming. Of that day and the hour, no man knows. I don't know when he's coming. I hope it's tonight. I hope it's tonight. And lastly, he says, take ye heed then. In other words, watch, be vigilant, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. You don't know when the time is, so be ready. It can happen at any moment. There's nothing that has to be done prophetically for Jesus to come for the church. I'm, I'm trying to prepare a study. <coughs> um, to go along with, it, with, with this. In the, fall, in the feast of Israel. And how prophecy is seen in all of the feasts of Israel. In particular the fall feasts of Israel. And uh, so um, pray that I could have the time to get this all worked up. so that uh, Because there's, there's some fascinating things to learn about the Feast of Trumpets. And um, because that's the feast that uh, truly coincides with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. And uh, I, just, I, I can't wait to do it, but I just got to do it when God wants me to do it. So just help me out here. Pray for that. Okay? So, chapter 9 is done. We'll begin with chapter 10 next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you so much for allowing us the opportunity, Lord, to take the time as we have tonight to study your word. I pray, Father, that you will continue to help us to understand these things as the more we the more we look at uh, the days and times in which we live, the more we look at the things that are happening globally and politically, especially in the Middle East, especially in Israel. We realize, we realize Lord, the time is so near. So help us, Lord God, uh, to understand that, uh, that you have blessed us truly in this, in this country, even though more and more our freedoms seem to be taken away from us but Lord it doesn't matter 
we, we want to honor your word before we honor anything else. But we give you thanks for giving us the opportunity to study these things here. Prepare our hearts, Lord God, to serve you until the day of Jesus Christ. So help us in these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Shall we stand?